Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. My name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. And we are so glad that you chose to be with us today. So I got to jump right in because we don't have much time and I got a lot of stuff to say. And I need you to listen really fast. But I want you to talk back to me. I know it's early. But it just helps me to know you're there, okay? All right. We're going to talk about uh, anxiety today. Yeah, I was a little anxious sitting over here, to be honest. What picture comes to mind when you hear the word worry? When you hear the word anxiety, what do you naturally think about? I want you to think through that for just a second. You see, the fact is, all humans are naturally prone to worry or to have anxiety. In the culture and the time in which we live today, as we watch world events such as international tensions in countries such as North Korea and even the Middle East, the catastrophic natural disasters of hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and even what recently happened, what recently happened here in our own city on October the 1st, it stands to reason that we would be prone to worry or have great deals of anxiety. When we focus on these things, worry is our natural go-to, if you will. I've also come to realize that when we say these words, nearly everyone in the room has a different definition of what anxiety or what the word worry may mean. Maybe it depends on how you were raised as a child, who modeled worry or anxiety for you, what generation you're in. I'm not really sure, but what I do know is that we all see it slightly differently. So today, our aim is not to clarify anyone's different definition of worry or anxiety. It is to relay to all of us what the Bible says about what the subject, and specifically in this passage that we're about to read, what Jesus himself said about it. I in no way want to belittle anxiety in your life. It is real. I know that. There are medical diagnoses for these things, and in in some cases, medication is needed. I, I got it. I know people in my own family who struggle with this mightily. Even in saying that, though, I do believe the Bible does speak to us about God's view and for his solution for worry and anxiety. And for that, I am so thankful. So before I begin today, though, I want to paint a picture of how fragile and dangerous the world we live in really is, but yet we don't even notice it sometimes. It's normal to us. Most of us just live and never worry about these things. Exhibit A, how our heart beats. How does our heart beat? The heart beats on its own. The brain tells the heart to beat and the, and the beating goes without us even thinking and causing it to beat. It beats while we sleep, while we work, eat, while we just live. Continually our heart beats. Most of us are not concerned and haven't even thought about how that happens. And then today, and, and until I just said it, Joel, nobody thought about how that happens in this room, probably. Yet when a heart doesn't beat. Secondly, how do planes actually fly? I'm like the nerd on the plane. 
When I get on the plane, I'm hoping I'm sitting beside somebody who doesn't know the answer to this so I can divulge my knowledge on them. People say, well, it's the jet engines. Well, I mean, obviously, the rights told us you have to get to a certain speed to be able to fly, right? Like, you can't just jump off the stage and fly around like a bird. We can't. They can. You see, power of the engines to create speed, yes, but rockets don't fly. I mean, we got a rocket scientist right here on the front who would say, very powerful. They fly, but they don't land very well. They're fast because of the powerful engines. Absolutely, we need engines, of course, but what makes flight possible are several factors. But one of the big factors is the shape of the wings. Maybe you never even thought about that. That's okay, I'll tell you about it after the service if you want. You see, the curvature of the wings create this low and this high pressure to cause lift that gets the plane in the air, and it also causes it to descend. That's why the flaps come out, to equalize the pressure. I don't want to get into all that, but you know what I'm saying. But most, most of us never think about it. I get on the plane, I, I, I fly planes four, five, six times per year, and I look over, and the dude next to me is asleep. He's not worried about how the plane flies. And most of us, even though I know there are some, I don't even know what it's called, aerophobes in the room, you can't take it the whole time, but most of us are sitting there going, when am I getting there? We don't even think about that, but it's actually dangerous. You see, it's a, it's a dangerous and fatal thing if our heart doesn't beat and if our plane doesn't fly. So why are most people not worried about them? Well, the reason is because we trust that our heart will beat. And we trust that the plane will fly. We trust, not speaking from experience necessarily, that the roller coaster will end. <laughs> well, end well. We trust that the car that we're driving in, along with the other people who are going 80 miles per hour, will actually get to its destination. We trust these things. And so we don't worry. See, you may not have worried about the things this week that I just said, but I bet there were things that you worried about. Bills, finances, doctor's diagnosis, losing your job, failing your class, losing your marriage, or losing your kids. I don't know what the thing is, but you have something in your mind right now. Every one of us, I would be willing to bet. The fact is, we know how not to worry, and we know how to worry. And we know what to worry about and what not to worry about. As soon as I mention the topic today, you, you may have even said this. If one more person tells me how to get over my anxiety. And then there were several angry curse words strewn throughout the rest. I'm not here to make light of this subject. We simply want you to be ready with God's answer for it. I want you to know what God says about this. And to be honest, it's the only answer he gave us about it. So how can we guard against the great temptation of worry or being anxious? Well, turn if you would, if you, if you would like, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. I want to read a passage of scripture for you. It'll be on the screen if you don't. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. This isn't the whole paragraph, but I don't have time to preach on the whole paragraph. I'm just going to preach these two verses, okay? I promise I'll keep it in context. Verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. We can just stop right there and just give the invitation and go. 
God said, be anxious for nothing. The Holy Spirit laid it upon Paul's heart and said, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Period. Before I show you the three things that God gives us today in this passage, let me do a brief context of the book of Philippians about what Paul himself, as well as the church, were going through at the time of the writing of this letter of Philippians. Now, this is important because when you read Philippians 4, 6 through 7, we may think that everything was going great for both Paul and the church at Philippi. But no. While Paul says this to us, Paul begins by saying in verse 4, which we didn't read, if you just look back up, he said, rejoice. Rejoice. Listen, he must have been in a great situation, because I only say rejoice when there are great situations. Maybe he had just gotten a promotion at work. Maybe, even though he was a missionary, maybe he found out he was getting a raise. I, I don't know. Maybe he was on his way to a Mediterranean cruise that we didn't know about for a month. Or even coming to some big money. Who knows? Who knows? I think I know. No. <laughs> None of that. He was in a jail looking at execution. Does that sound like fun? Does that sound like something to rejoice about? In fact, he'd been there. Listen, this was his fourth year in the jail. He didn't just get there. And the worst part, he'd done nothing for it. Three times at this point in chapter 1, he tells us the reason we know he's there is because he talks about his circumstances. And he even says, in my chains in one version, but in other versions, he talks about his imprisonment. But yet, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, you know what he says? Rejoice! And again, I say, rejoice! What about the church at Philippi? Surely they were a growing church with multiple buildings and campuses across the world and and just seeing the flow of people being saved and money being given and things being had and a trunk or treat that's going on on Tuesday. They had to have been a wealthy church with no unity problems. And no, here's what we know just from the book itself the members of this church struggled big time financially, they didn't have a lot of money, they were the poorest of the poor. There was major disunity in this church. He talks about two women who couldn't get along. Not that that ever happens. <laughs> Men either. It's just they mentioned the two ladies. They got their name in the Bible, though, I will say. I mean, they were under great spiritual persecution. We know that by what he says. And, and he also talks about them being attacked and inundated by false teachers. And we know all of this. Because he mentions it in the book. Seemingly, there wasn't a reason for neither Paul nor the church, that congregation, to rejoice and not worry or to be anxious. But this is exactly what Paul exhorts them to do. He's in jail. The church is hurting. And he says, here's what we need to do. Let's all worry. No, he said, never worry. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything. So I want to show you the three things that God gives us today. The first one, God gives us a command not to be anxious. The command is this, be anxious for nothing. Now this isn't just for 
the church that was at Philippi, listen, guys, if you're in this room and you can hear my voice, you say, Tom, you don't know what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter. Here's what the Bible says, and I'm not trying to be insensitive because I sat down there and I was anxious myself to even climb up here and say this. Be anxious for nothing. Webster's definition of anxiety or worry is to be unduly concerned or apprehensive or to have anxiety. By anxious, we mean worry. Pastor Vance gave us a definition a while back, and here's what he said. He said, worry is fearful concern about the circumstances in my life, past, present, and future. Worry, fearful concern about the circumstances. You say, Tom, that, that defines me absolutely, but here's what he went on to say. Pastor Vance said this. He said, how do I know the difference between genuine concern and worry in my life? Here's how you can know. Genuine concern expresses itself in dependence on God. In other words, what will God do? Whereas worry expresses itself in dependence on self. What am I going to do? Ironically, the verse says, be anxious. Did you see that? It doesn't say, don't be anxious, even though I've said it like three times. Actually, it's the name of the sermon too, so. But his exact words are, be anxious. Be anxious. And not, do not be anxious, even though it obviously means don't be. Uh, what it says is, be anxious to this Command gives its negative understanding. In other words, here's what he says. There's something to be anxious about, and it starts with an N. Nothing. You want to be anxious? Here it is. Nothing. Go for it. Some people could turn that into something, couldn't they? The command, be anxious for nothing, that means never worry. Ever. Never be anxious. There's never a reason to be anxious. He said, be anxious for nothing. As a parent, I give commands and instructions to my kids to help them to make sure that they're safe and healthy and as happy as possible. God does the same thing for us. I say stuff like, don't ride your bike in the road, brush your teeth, don't have sex before marriage, don't take drugs. These are commands based on love for them. Because I know the consequences even when they don't. And our Father knows the consequences of worry for us. And so he commands us not to. You say, Tom, that's easier said than done. And trust me, I know. I'm not oblivious to worry myself or anxiety. I get it. But obedience to parents is if we had kids in here, and there may be some in here today who would say, you know, it's really tough to obey my parents too. We all agree that even though we know it's just tough. So God gives us this command not to be anxious. Number two, God gives us a way out of anxiety. He gives us an escape, if you will. And here's the escape. Allow God to have the situation. Again, Tom, very, very difficult to do, easy to say, difficult to do. Here's what he says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He uses this word, but, and I've often said, I've even said it from this pulpit many times, that the word, but, and the New Testament is one of the most important words because it contrasts whatever the first part of the sentence is with the last part of the sentence. So here's what he said. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Was that a play on words, Tom? Well, there is a word for no, and there's a word for nothing in the Greek New Testament. And he doesn't use the word no at the beginning of the sentence. He uses the word nothing, which is why it's translated like that. Just, I, I got a feeling the Holy Spirit wanted to also use the word everything. 
You see what nothing and everything is? Completely opposite. He says, but in everything, again, contrasting what he's just said, in any situation, in any circumstance, in any decision, any diagnosis, good or bad, small or earth-shaking, God wants it all from us. And how do we give it to him? He even tells us by prayer and supplication. He uses two different words to tell us how to do that. The word by here is like a, it's like a conduit. It's like a pipe that you put water through. By is that pipe. And he said, here's how you do that. You put anxiety in there and you let it flow straight to God through prayer and supplication. Prayer, presenting, and here's what prayer means, presenting a petition or an earnest request to ask for something. But then he uses the word supplication. Here's what that means, an urgent request to meet a need. Sometimes, not very often, I go to the doctor at his office. Sometimes I meet him at the emergency room. That's prayer and supplication. Am I the only one here? I thought about that for a long time. I got to ask for it now. I don't. But he goes on. He said. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. He could have left that out, Terry. He could have left the thanksgiving part. Now listen, Tom, I can understand what we've said up to now, but are you telling me I should be thankful for every circumstance, even the rough ones? Truth is, God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. The Bible says, is it difficult to thank God sometimes for the stuff? Yes. Should we thank him? Yes. Because he knows. He was never taken off guard by any situation we found ourselves in. He is never wringing his hands or wiping his brow. He isn't surprised by anything that happens in our life. When we come to him, he doesn't go, oh my goodness. He knew he has a plan. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, he ends it by saying like this, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, reveal or cause the requests that are in your mind to become known to him. Not to tell him what it is, but so that you can reinforce with words what you're thinking. He already knows. Allow yourself to let go of the decisions, in other words, of the circumstances, the problems. And I can tell you this, our biggest barrier... Is to let it go. We want to hold. We want to handle. But God wants to do it for us. I got a ticket one time, speeding. One time. Because I'm cheap. I didn't want that to happen again. I sure wish somebody else would have handled it. We get situations in our lives. Listen, God wants to have them. Let him handle those things that are worrisome and that cause anxiety in our lives. Let him have it. He said, with thanksgiving, we should be thankful for them. To God, he goes on, to God. Only he has the ability to solve 
to rearrange, to teach in, to teach through, to develop, even to conquer everything that causes anxiety while explaining what Jesus said in Matthew. Even Jesus, here's what he said. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And John Ortberg talks about this verse that Jesus exclaimed. He says this, he said, the soul was not made for an easy life. The soul was made for an easy yoke. We have a yoke fellow in Jesus. He wants to do it. I thought when I got saved, everything would be great. Welcome to Christianity. (laughs) Can I just tell you, it will be great. It'll be perfect, but I'll be honest with you. Even in the hard times, it's still great. He has given us what we need. He wants to take those things from us. The only healthy and adequate place our concerns that cause worry and anxiety and get our needs met are found in God and God alone. So what does God allow us to worry about? Nothing. You need to go home and write that on your refrigerator. Things I can worry about today, nothing. Know what the Bible says and believe in. Easier said than done. I know, I live to. He's got it. God doesn't expect us to handle life situations without him. He expects us to let him handle it. So what can we worry about? Nothing. What does he say about what to do about our situations? Give them to him. Worry about nothing, give them all to him. And if we do, Paul writes next what we will be given. Here's what he says, and this is the end today. God gives us the promise of peace. It's the product, peace. He goes on to say, as we finish, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. This word peace is the word shalom. When God created humans, peace was all that they knew. Can you imagine? We will imagine someday. Then sin came into the world, and when that happened, peace was destroyed completely. In fact, Cornelius Plangentus Jr. in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which I encourage you to read it. It's, it's kind of a tough book to read, but it's, it's super awesome. Not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, do we have his? Yes, okay. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Here's what he says. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law. But more substantively, that's a hard word. We don't say that word in Tennessee much. Because it violates shalom. Think about it. Because it breaks the peace. Because it interferes with the way things were supposed to be. The sin in our lives has caused us to be wrecks. To have worry and to have anxiety and to have to deal with things that we shouldn't have, should have never had to deal with. You see, I believe that the thing every human seeks more than anything else in life is peace. Everything we do has to do with rearranging and regaining or obtaining peace. Listen, it's why we're here today. I mean, some of you at least, you came because you said, I just need some peace in my life. I can worship God through music. I can listen to somebody teach. I can hear God say something to me, I can get a hug, I can give a hug. It's peaceful. It's why we have the hobbies that we have. 
It's why we eat the food that we eat. And it's why we vacation where we vacation. It's why you do what you do. We all desperately seek what God gave us the desire for from creation. And that was peace. And that's what we miss the most. We know it's out there. We just don't know how to get it. That's why some people turn to alcoholism and drug abuse. We're trying to find the peace that we don't have. But he's the prince of peace. And he gives it. What kind of peace? Well, he said it. He said the peace of God. God's peace. The one who created peace. In fact, peace is defined by who God is. This is the kind of peace that we need. Our peace just doesn't fulfill our natural self. Our natural peace isn't perfect, but his is perfect. And he can give it. Paul goes on to describe this peace further by writing this. He says, which surpasses all understanding. This word surpasses is the idea of excelling past or, listen to this, being better than the rest. Understanding here means to comprehend. This peace is not a peace understood with the human brain. It goes past whatever you could imagine, whatever you could think up. It surpasses it. You see, God has a plan to curtail, to shut down, to get rid of and grow you in your situation, no matter what that is. And he will give you the peace you need, not only to survive it, but to thrive in it. You can have your peace or you can have the peace that comes from your worry, which is not peace at all. So why do we need this peace? He ends by saying this. He says, to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This word to guard means to protect or to provide security. We all love knowing we're safe and secure. Get this picture. God is guarding your heart. He is guarding your mind from the situations, any situation, when we give it to him. Our God stands at the gate of our heart, at the gate of our mind, and guards us from even recognizing the things that we are sitting in, that we are enduring. He will guard it. You say, Tom, I'm not ignorant. I know it's still going to happen. I got you. But the longer I'm with him and the more I can give it to him, here's what happens in my mind. It begins to fade away. I trust him. We all love knowing that we're safe and secure. He wants us not to focus on the momentary distress or even terminal issues. Our focus is to be on him. And when it is, he guards our hearts and minds from the destructiveness of situations we cannot solve, that we did not cause in many instances, and, and the thoughts of things that may never happen. And that may be the worst. You know how much time we spent thinking about things that are never going to occur? People will say, I'm an extremely, uh, uh, Tom, I'm in an extremely difficult situation and I don't know what decision to make. I actually feel like God doesn't even care and I don't feel his nearness or his presence at all. Again, John Ortberg addresses this by speaking of Jesus while he was hanging on the cross and saying to the Father, why have you forsaken me? John Ortberg writes this, he says, it's possible that Jesus is most present with us when we feel him the least. Think on that for a second. I want to read you a quick story from a book I'm currently reading. And I've quoted him twice today, John Ortberg. I like the title. It's 
I'd like you more if you were more like me. <laughs> Thought this was the perfect book for Tom McCormick. <laughs> Couldn't wait to dive into this one. I love the way he writes, and that's really the reason I bought it. He writes this. He says, a few weeks ago, when I was out surfing, there was no one else in the water. In fact, there was no one around at all except a guy the size of Goliath doing Taekwondo on the beach. Just me and him. After I'd been out a little while, a tiny wisp of a kid came paddling up out of nowhere. I couldn't believe he was out there by himself. He pulled his little board right up, to, right up next to mine. He was so small, he hardly needed a board. He could have stood up in the ocean on a Frisbee. Anyway, he started chatting with me like we were old friends. He told me his name was Shane. He asked me how long I'd been surfing. I asked him how long he'd been surfing. Seven years, he said. How old are you, I asked. He said eight. He's been surfing for several years, this kid. He asked me about my kids and my family. Then he said, what I like about surfing is that it's so peaceful. He said, you meet a lot of nice people here. I said, you're a nice guy, Shane. That's why you meet nice people. We talked a little while longer than I asked him. Shane, how did you get here? My dad brought me, he said. Then he turned around and waved at the nearly empty beach. The Goliath doing martial arts waved back. <laughs> Hi, son, he called out. Then I knew why Shane was so at home in the ocean. It wasn't his size, it wasn't his skill, it was who was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching. And his father was very big. Shane wasn't really alone at all, neither are we. At its core, the gospel is the invitation to an intimate relationship with God. It tells us we are never alone. Although we cannot see him, our Father is always present, always watching. We can turn to him at any moment. We can safely approach and love those around us. We can be okay even if we face storms of rejection or pain. For God is never far away. Never far away. So what are we supposed to do with our worry, anxiety that all of us have and probably daily? We're supposed to give it to him. What are we supposed to worry about? Nothing. What does he promise us when we give it to him? Peace. Terry and I talked before the sermon today. And he reminded me of something that Clyde Cranford said in his book. He said, when I go into prayer, I'm usually not at peace with things that are in my life that I worry about or I think about. But once I'm in there for a while, it turns to peace. Have you given it to the Lord? Prayer? Supplication? Because let me tell you, your own mind and body will never be able to bring peace. The only place we'll find it is in Him. He gave us the cure and there it is. But if we don't, He still loves us. His grace is sufficient for us. Because he knows that we are but dust. But he's given us a way of escape. To say, if you'll give it to me, I'll take it.
Some might be saying today, Tom, I'm a, I'm a Christian. This should not be happening to me or this should be easier for me. I get it why people who don't know God would do this, but I don't know why I would. Well, here's what John MacArthur says. He says, unfortunately, when they, when, when they face trials, believers often seem to forget what they know about God. They lose their confident trust in Him. Lose their self-control and spiritual stability and are defeated. I just want to say this as we close today. Don't ever forget what you know about God. Don't ever forget what he said to us. You can trust him. And he'll wait on you to do it. Jesus, thank you for your grace in our lives today. Thank you for the peace that only you bring. Jesus, I know there are several here today, maybe all of us in this room. God, we struggle with this so much. But God, you said give it to you. And God, I don't know how you take it away or if you do take it away, but I know you said you would guard our heart and give us peace. And so, Lord, we trust you in it. As we finish today, I don't know, the only way that you'll really have peace in your life is if you know the Prince of Peace. And so if you don't know Christ today, this may be the day of your salvation. And we would love to tell you about that and about him. So if you need to give your life to Christ today, listen, I implore you, don't walk out of this building because the devil will take the seed that is planted and he will take it away for himself. But if you are a Christian, this altar will be open. There will be pastors here who will pray with you. We have other people, leaders here who will pray with you. You say, Tom, I just want God to take it. Then here's what we want you to do. We want you to give it to him. Give it to him. Physical diagnosis, mental stuff, financial situation, marriage, kids. Listen, this altar is open. God is waiting for you to pour it out to him. So I implore you today to do that. Your God loves you more than you could ever imagine and wants to take whatever that is. That's why he died on the cross. Lord, we want to give it to you today. We know that we are useful to you no matter what, but God, sometimes our own minds tells us that we are useless because of where we sit and think on things that may never happen. We know you know all things, and God, that should give us peace to begin with. We thank you for your grace today. Do what you want to do. Save those you have, have wanted to save for years. And God, take these things as they lay them down at your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name.